you've got a Bible, folks, you could turn it to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. I'm going to read into us in a few moments. Uh, My name is Neil. If I don't know you, I'm one of the leaders here at Liberty Church. And over the next four weeks, uh, we're going to be taking some time together as a church to remind ourselves, uh, remind ourselves of our identity as a church. We do this every September. It's a good opportunity just to reflect and recall who it is uh, that we are. And, and really, the church is an amazing thing, isn't it? Any, any church that you step into anywhere in the world, any church that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will find that there are, there are common essential convictions. There are things that, that we believe that are believed uh, by churches on the other side of the world. We have, we have commonalities, truths that are rooted and grounded in Scripture, these essential convictions that are found in every gathering of God's people. But what we do find is that the context in which those churches are found, those contexts are different. And so the way that we live out those convictions is often expressed in different ways or, or looks a little bit different. And here at Liberty, we articulate our core convictions, our core values through three simple words, truth, transformation and presence. Truth, transformation and presence. And this is really, it'll be up on the screen, just a summary of what our ambition is as a church. We say this, it's our desire to hold out and hold on to truth. And what we mean by that is not just any, any kind of truth. We're talking about the Bible there. We're talking about the gospel. We're saying that we are gospel people. And our desire as a church is that we are people who both hold on to the gospel, hold on to the truth of God's word, and we hold that out to others. And we're also a church who want to pursue transformation. And again, we're not just talking about any sort of transformation and change. We're talking about spiritual transformation. A change that moves us from being sinners into saints. A transformation that makes us more and more unto Christ. More and more like, like who he is in his conduct and his character. And we pursue that transformation in our own lives and in the lives of others. We want to be discipled and we want to disciple one another. And as we go, we practice a tangible presence. And that really means this. We want to be a church that are on mission. We don't want to be a church who just meet here on a Sunday afternoon and shut the doors and leave and then we disappear from the community. We want to be present, but in a tangible way. A way that affects our community. A way that our neighbours are able to see, wow, well, those people next door, they they look different. They engage in, in life differently than the way we do. We want to be people who, as we hold on to truth, as we're being changed more and more into the likeness of Christ, that that we are people who are tangibly present. We don't just keep our mouths shut as we are filled with his truth, but we allow to spill over. That is who we are, a people of truth, a people of transformation, and a people of presence. And this week, we're going to see what it is to be a people of truth, a people who both hold on to truth and Hold that truth out. So if you're not there yet, turn to 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, I should say as well, for some of our American brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going to read 1 to 8 in a minute, but just a bit of context. Corinth, for the next few weeks for us, Corinth is going to be a bit of a base camp. 
this city that the Apostle Paul is writing to. We're going to just spend a bit of time in this letter and in uh, the book of Acts as well, just understanding a little bit more about, about what it looked like for Paul to be a man of truth, transformation and presence, and the early church to be people who held on to those convictions. And it's helpful to know that as the Apostle Paul writes this letter, he's writing somewhere near 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And this city of Corinth uh, would be in modern day Greece as we would know it. It was one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. It was a place of affluence. It was a coastal city. There was lots of trade and economy. And as, as the Apostle Paul lands in Corinth, there was no established church there before he landed. He was, he was the one who planted the church into Corinth. And as he lands there, what he would have found was, was a melting pot of of all sorts of different beliefs and practices, all sorts of different cultures coming together in the one place. And that's no different to to how we find our society today. I describe the moment that we're living in now in the Western world a little bit like um, standing at at the back of a, a supermarket. So think of Think of the, the big Tesco's on Park Road or, or a big Morrison's, like a big supermarket that has all the works. You know what I mean? Like a butcher's and a, and a fish and all that sort of stuff. And imagine you're, you're, you're stood at the back of the supermarket. It's usually at the back where you find all those bits and bobs. And you're in that perfect spot where, where you've got the, the, the whiff of the, the freshly baked bread coming towards you. But then you've also got a bit of a pong and a stench from the fishmongers coming that way and then... And then uh, the smell from the butchers and then the smell from the rotisserie chicken. And you're getting like just this combination of all these different sorts of smells coming in. And, and then imagine, I don't know, imagine someone, someone brings you into the supermarket, but you're blindfolded. And they take you to that, that point, that point where all those smells are intersecting. And they say to you, okay, which aisle are we on? And you're like, well, well I can smell some bread, but then I, I can smell a bit of fish. I, and you can't really work it out. It's, it's slightly confused. You can't really ground where you are. You're at this intersection of all these different smells and flavors. And you can't put your finger on which one is right. Like where you actually are. Now think of how that same scenario plays out in our Western society. Not, not with groceries, but with fundamental questions of life. Questions like... Um, at what, point, at what point do we say that a baby in a mother's womb is actually a human? Okay, and you're standing at this intersection and there's lots of different answers. In Western society, there are lots of different answers to that fundamental question. Or what about, what is a man? Or what is a woman? And as you stand at that intersection in culture, there are lots of variable answers to those questions. What about who has authority to end my life? There was a point in time where that was just a nonsense question, but that is a question which is being asked. And there are a number of different answers to that question. Why are we here? What's my purpose? Who is God? And with each of those questions, the regular person in society in the Western world now stands at an intersection and there are a whole variety of answers coming to them. And it's unclear. It's confusing as to what is truth. And because these aren't trivial issues and trivial 
questions. We can't afford to get them wrong. Which makes that intersection, that place where they're getting all these different perspectives coming in, it actually makes it a dangerous place to be. A little bit like if you were to walk out into a, an intersection in the road and you've got cars coming from, you from all different directions, it's, it's a place that you're going to get hurt. Unless, unless you know what the truth is. Unless you know the truth. And in these few verses here in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul is going to help us understand what it is to be a people of truth. So let me read from verse 1. Proclaiming Christ crucified. If you need a Bible, by the way, just pop your hand up and the old Beth will uh, grab you one at the back. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it was not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Let me pray. Father, we ask and we pray that you would teach us this afternoon. Through these words of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, teach us what it means for us to be a people of truth. And Lord Jesus, we believe that these are your words that they are living, that they are active, that they are sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray, we ask that you would change us, that you would transform us for your glory. Amen. What we just read in 1 Corinthians 2 is Paul looking back, looking back to, to what happened when he first landed in Corinth. And what we see in verse 6, as he talks about this wisdom of the age, the rulers of the age, we see that as he lands in Corinth, he comes to to something like that cultural intersection that we're talking about. He calls that place a place where where we find the rulers of the age. And and we can just imagine that that different people and different different, uh, kind of uh, proponents in the culture are touting their different wisdom. But Paul says in verse 8, they don't really understand truth. They're confused. And he paints a picture of them being blinded to the truth but the ultimate problem of the wisdom of the age all these different perspectives coming in the ultimate problem is found in verse 6 Paul says that both the wisdom of the age and by implication those who follow it they are doomed to pass away they're doomed to pass away now that sounds like quite a heavy heavy phrase doomed but really what he's saying is that it's leading to destruction it's leading to death Despite what they promised, despite how attractive their wisdom might be, Paul is reminded us they never, never lead to life. They are doomed to pass away. 
And that's a problem. That's a problem because our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues and work, some of even our family members, people who we love, people who we hold dear, maybe even some of you this afternoon are standing at that intersection with all these different types of wisdom coming towards you. And you're being told, this is the way to live. This is the way to, to life. This is, this is the answer, answer to this fundamental question of life. And there, there's all these different people given their, their types of truth. And really, Paul says, you're being sold a lie. You're being sold a lie that is leading you to death. Now, Paul, in his time, as he comes into Corinth, he encounters specific types of, of destructive wisdom, this doomed type of wisdom. Destructive wisdom in the age that, that he lives. And, and folks, we do too. Firstly, we encounter the destructive wisdom of anti-authoritarianism. This is a, an age where, and a type of wisdom where, where you have your truth and I have my truth. And that's okay. And we're okay unless you interfere with my truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, and it's none of your business if you think my truth isn't true. Are you still with me? Even if it isn't true. It's none of your business to tell me that I'm wrong because you have no authority over me. This is the, the type of, of wisdom that we get in an anti-authoritarian age. And even if, even folks, if my truth is morally wrong, or even if my truth harms me, or even, folks, if my truth harms someone else, in an anti-authoritarian age, you've got no right to tell me that I'm wrong. Because if you do, that means you're trying to control me, and you're trying to assert power over me. And, folks, control and power are the piñata that are getting beaten day after day in our culture. We don't like it. We live in an anti-authoritarian age where we are the arbiter of truth. It's no longer religion, it's no longer politicians, it's no longer government, it's no longer education, it's me. I get to determine what's true and what isn't. Somewhere like the last 60 years, we've seen a shift in our culture where we are being led to believe that we are, we are individuals. We're not, we're not, we don't need to be connected. We don't need to rely on one another. We are individuals and we are the only ones that we can truly trust, even on issues as binary as whether I am a man or whether I am a woman or whether I am a cat. It's up to me to decide. There's the anti-authoritarian age. There's also the destructive wisdom of a sentimental age. In the sentimental age, this is where feelings matter more than facts. In the sentimental age, everything has to be nice. And everything you say to me has to be nice. But the problem is with that, sometimes I need to say things to you that aren't nice, but are right. Like if I've got cancer, like if the doctor discovers I've got cancer, I don't want to sit in front of that doctor and him be nice to me and say nice things. I want him to say what's right which feels hard and feels heavy and it might hurt, but it's the right thing for him to do. But in a sentimental age, there is no tolerance for that kind of counsel when we're just engaging with one another. Like, like don't hurt my feelings. And if we hit a crisis, the default diagnosis in a sentimental age is that we are victims in need of counseling, not sinners in need of sanctification. Don't, don't call me a sinner. 
Don't say that I've done wrong. No, that's hurtful to me. That's abusive language. And I'm not saying that counselling is wrong and I'm not saying that there aren't victims in society. Of course there are. But we live in this age where we can't point out the wrongs in people's lives, even in love. Folks, just like in an anti-authoritarian age, that type of wisdom will never lead to life. And then there's the destructive wisdom of a secular progressive age. It wasn't really that long ago that the, the major institutions of our society were propped up by truths that we find in the Bible or by religious observance. That's not the case anymore. Or it's increasingly becoming less the case. And it's not that people don't necessarily believe in God. And it's not that people don't necessarily believe in the Bible. I think a lot of people do, but, but it's God on my terms. It's the God that I want him to be. And it's the Bible that I say it's going to be. Like, like I'll pick and choose the bits out of here that I, that I want to believe and the bits that I don't. God is whoever we want him to be or we want her to be. And, and he does whatever we want him to do. The Bible says what we want it to say. So it makes an easy life for us. And folks, viewing the Bible in that way, that has radically changed how society views commitment. Biblically rooted traditions that have been assumed and celebrated for thousands of years. Traditions like marriage, masculinity, femininity, the bearing of children. Those things are now easily rejected because they come with imposed commitment. And we don't like that. We don't like that we're fixed to something or someone and we've got responsibilities and we've got to care for someone else. And so when it comes to marriage, if I've had enough of my wife, then then I'll just leave her. When it comes to being a man like the Bible calls me to be a man, if I don't want to be, then I just won't. When it comes to, to, to understand what it is to be truly feminine, if that rubs up against me and it just doesn't feel right, well, I'll, I'll reject it. When it comes even to bearing a child, if they are inconvenient to me, then I'll just dispose of it. That is the result of a secular, progressive age. An age where boundaries impinging on people's freedoms are rejected. And folks, that type of wisdom will never lead to life. There are maybe lots more, but here's the last one from me. The destructive wisdom of a licentious age. We don't really use that word a lot, do we? Licentious. It actually sounds like it it is, if you know what the word means. Maybe we could say sexually permissive. Sexually liberal age. There is a lot of wisdom that is being poured out of this age, especially to our young folks. I'm really excited. In a few weeks' time, in October, we're going to start a new series in the Song of Songs. And I can't wait. And what we're going to find in the Song of Songs is we're going to, we're going to be led into a place where, where we, we can increase our intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see our position as, as his beautiful bride and we're going to be able to, to have our affections stirred for him. And really, that is the heart of the Song of Songs. But also in the Song of Songs, we see echoes of God's plan for sexual pleasure between one human and another. And what we see in scripture is sexual pleasure is to be kept exclusively within marriage between one man, one woman. And in that marriage, the man is mandated to lovingly and sacrificially lead, protect and provide for his wife. 
That's what scripture says. That's the way that the Lord says is a way to human flourishing, a way for flourishing and sexuality. But in a licentious age, that is scorned. That type of life where you commit yourself to one person for for the rest of your life, where you just have sex within marriage, where it's just between one man and one woman. That's just outdated, they would say. It's oppressive. Because at the end of the day, my body is my body. And love is love, so who are you to tell me what I can do with it? And who I can love? Folks, that type of wisdom will never lead to life. Each of these ages, and there's more of them that I could describe, each of them are offering their wisdom at this intersection. And they're all promising ways to lead to life. And we see it and we hear it all the time, don't we? It's all around us in the culture. You know, I took our, our uh, young two to watch the latest Disney film a couple of weeks ago. A Disney film, it was PG. And there were aspects of each of these ages bleeding out into the, into the film. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, like even at that age, at eight and ten, they are being soaked in it. And so are we with advertisements and social media. And at every corner that we turn, we are being saturated with the wisdom of this age. Well, what should we do as the church? What should we do? Do we just hide away and think, do you know what, I'm not even... Let them just get on. If it's all falling apart anyway, let them just get on with it. We'll look back at Paul in Corinth. Paul sees the confusion. He sees the lack of understanding. He sees the blindness of those at this intersection where all the wisdom of the age is coming together. And what does he do in verse 1? He doesn't shrink back. He doesn't stand there and wag his finger and moan and complain. What does he do in verse 1? He makes it his priority to proclaim the testimony of God. He makes it his priority to proclaim the testimony or or the true message of God, which in verse 2 he tells us is this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is Paul's response to all of that, that false wisdom that is being purported in Corinth. To make the truth of God's word his priority. Paul says in verse 2, I decided to give you nothing else. Nothing else but the testimony of the crucified Jesus. Folks, that is what we call the gospel. If you're new to the Christian faith or, or maybe new to liberty, like we use that word a lot, the gospel. Well, this is what we mean when we say it. The gospel is the testimony of Jesus. The truth of the crucified Jesus. The gospel is what we read and hear. Gospel literally meaning good news. The gospel is the good news that God has made us in his image. Made us to enjoy his presence. The gospel is the good news that that even though our sin separates us from God and, and dislocates us from being able to enjoy the fullness of God's presence. The gospel is the good news that, that God sent his son Jesus to live the life that we couldn't live. The gospel is the good news that that as Jesus lived that perfect life, he also died the the death that we should have died. And as he died on a cross, he died not for his sins, but for our sins. The gospel is the good news that that, that the grave couldn't hold him. And three days after he was crucified, three days after he suffered the judgment from our sin, 
He rose again victorious over Satan, sin and death. The gospel is the good news that he resurrected from the dead and then he ascended to the Father, giving his people eternal life. The gospel is the good news that he left his Holy Spirit to indwell his people. He left his Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit could help us become more and more like Jesus and less and less like our own self. He left us his Holy Spirit to empower us and equip us for the mission. He left us his Holy Spirit to protect us and help us from our flesh, the world and the devil. The gospel is good news and the gospel is the only wisdom, the only truth that leads to life. It is the only truth that leads to life. And folks, it isn't intolerant to say that. It isn't arrogant to say that the gospel is the only truth that leads to life. It isn't. It's loving. You know, in in Buddhism and Hinduism, there's this parable of of tolerance that is told. You might have heard it. The parable of, of the six blind men and the elephant. And the parable is told, it's often told to children to try and help them understand what it looks like to be tolerant, to to appreciate other people's perspectives. And the parable goes like this. There is an elephant and there are six blind men and they approach this elephant. And each of them kind of feel this elephant and try and understand what the elephant is. And the first blind man, he feels, feels the side of the elephant and he feels something big and something strong. And he says, he says, it's a wall. We, we found a wall. And another one of the blind men, he's a little bit down low and he takes hold of of one of the legs of the elephant. He says, no, 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 it's not a wall, it's a tree. And another one finds the tusk and he's thinking, oh, this this is sharp and pointy. It's not a tree, it's not a wall, it's a spear. And the fourth one takes hold of the tail. And as he feels the tail, he's thinking, it feels, it's, it's a rope, that's what it is. Another one takes hold of the ear, this kind of big, moving, floppy object. And he says, no, it's not a rope, it's a fan. And then the last one takes hold of the trunk. And he says, you're all wrong. What we've got here is a snake. And they all fall out and they all disagree. And the moral that is taught out of this parable is, you know what, folks? They were all a little bit right and they were all a little bit wrong. And what they need to do, what the loving thing to do is just to respect each other's opinions Just be tolerant of other people's opinions. We don't need to fall out about it. And folks, we are taught that same moral lesson in our Western culture today. You have your truth. I have my truth. Let's not fall out about it. Except that isn't loving at all. It isn't loving at all. You know what would be loving in that parable? Is the guy who's watching it all, writing it all down, for him to say, fellas, you can't see it's an elephant. It's an elephant. That's what it is. You can't see it, but I'm telling you the truth because I can. It's an elephant. And friends, that is exactly what Paul does with the gospel in Corinth. They cannot see, and so he tells them the truth. But you're being foolish. You're chasing after this truth over here. You're chasing after. Let me, let me just tell you the truth. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's him crucified. That's the truth. That is what Paul does in Corinth and it's desperately, folks, what we need to do in our age today here. Folks, Liverpool, 
wherever you're from, needs prophetic voices who will lovingly enter into the intersection and hold our truth into a confused and blind generation and tell them that it is by grace alone in faith, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that we are saved. And in the next few weeks, we're going to see what that looks like, what it looks like for us to hold out truth. And we see here just really helpfully some of the honest omissions of Paul. He was, he was doing it with fear and trembling. He was doing it with muddled words. Oh, it gives me so much hope and relief for when, when I'm sharing. We're going to see what it looks like for us to hold out truth. But folks, before we even get there, before we're people who hold out the truth and the hope and the gospel, we need to be people who hold onto it ourselves. Yes, we need to hold our truth, but before we hold it out, we need to hold onto it ourselves. If we're going to call people to follow Jesus, we need to know Jesus first. If we're going to call people into the gospel, we need to know the gospel. If we're going to tell people, oh, this is our delight, then we need to delight in it ourselves. So before we hold out truth, we need to be a church who holds on to truth. In an anti-authoritarian age, we want to be a church who hold on to the truth of God's word as our ultimate authority. And we do that willingly and joyfully. In a sentimental age, we want to hold out the truth of God's word and actually accept that it tells me I'm broken. It tells me I'm sinful. And be a people who confess of our sin and repent of it and come to Jesus for help. In a secular progressive age, we hold out the truth of God's word, which gives us boundaries and rules. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you for telling me where I should live and how I should live and, and what to stay away from. And in a licentious age, we hold on to the truth of God's word, which provides the blueprint for human flourishing. And we accept it. And that means we deny ourselves and we put our flesh to death. Each of these ages, folks, they are crumbling around us. And as they fall apart, as Paul charges Timothy, we are to hold fast to the trustworthy word. That's what we're to do. To hold fast to the word of God. To hold fast to the testimony, the true words of Jesus. Practically, folks, this is so simple, but I know it's so hard sometimes. That means we open it and we read it. We study it and we engage with it. And I know maybe some of us struggle to read if you're subscribed to our email tomorrow. As that email comes out, there's going to be some help for you there. If you genuinely struggle to read them, we want to remove all the stumbling blocks that might be there for you, holding on to the trustworthy word so there's help for you on there. But I know for a lot of us, we haven't picked this up in a long time. We haven't read it for a long time. And so I plead with you, resolve today, tomorrow morning, to open it up, to hold fast to the trustworthy word. Husbands, you have a unique responsibility with this. Ephesians 5 says that you are to wash your wives with the water of the word, which means that you are responsible for creating in your homes a culture where this is open, where you as a family gather around and listen to the words of Jesus. The rest of us are reminded every Sunday as we gather around scripture, aren't we, from Hebrews 4, 12, that these words are living. They're active. They're sharper than any two-edged Sword, folks, in here we find the power to change us into, into the people that we were created to be. 
No other words that you read this week come with that promise. So hold on to it. Hold fast to it. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. And there is so much confusion, so much deceit that you are going to encounter in the world this week. In fact, not even just in the world, in your own heart. You encounter so much deceit, but God says, every word of mine proves true. So friends, hold fast to it and don't let go. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's not even that the gospel is just true, it is good for us. It equips us, it, it conforms us, it trains us to be more like Christ. So friends, hold on to it, don't let go. Remember what Jesus taught, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. As we fill our lives with the truth from God's word, what we are filling our lives with, folks, it will bear eternal fruit. And in Matthew 4, Jesus tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, ultimately, we cannot live without this. We cannot live without the word of God. We perish without it. He promises to feed us. He promises to sustain us. He promises to grow us through his word. So folks, hold on to it. Don't let go. Read it. Study it. Listen to it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. But whatever you do, don't let go of it. Folks, the truths that are being offered in our age, they are crumbling and they provide no hope for the future. There's only one truth that leads to life and it is the truth of God's word. And it's that truth that we hold out and it's that truth that we hold on to. Let's pray. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Jesus, that is our confession. We don't want to build our lives on anything else other than you and your truth. And we see and we understand maybe a little bit more now this afternoon that we have no hope for this life or for what is to come outside of you. And so... And so help us hold on to you. Help us hold on to your word. Keep us from trusting in the wisdom, in the wisdom of the age that we live in. No matter how sweet it looks, no matter how much it entices us, help us to hold on to your word, which is truth. And Lord Jesus, some of us need help. Some of us struggle with discipline. Some of us maybe have doubts as we come to your word. So Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. Help us to see the necessity. Help us to see the urgency. Help us to see the privilege of holding on to the truth of God's word. And as we open it, Holy Spirit, lead us to Jesus. It's him that we want to hear from. It's him that we want to see. Our crucified, risen Savior who gives us life. It is all about him. And so, Jesus, it's to you now that we sing, because you and you alone are worthy. It's in your name that we pray.